Amen. Well, thanks for joining us this morning, especially you regular 10 o'clockers who didn't change your, uh, your, uh, <laughs> your uh, uh, fallbacks. But uh, in our equipping service, we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, and so you're going to experience what our equipping service is like. And today we're tackling one of the most challenging passages. And I just got to tell you, you've got to stay with me in this today. It'll be worth it by the end, but we're going to have to take a long path to get there. Ezekiel comes to the people and he says, there was an eagle with multicolored feathers. And that eagle came and he rested upon a cedar. And upon that cedar, he took a twig. In fact, he took the top of the cedar. And he traveled with that twig to a far off land, a land of merchants, a land of trade. And he planted it there in a terrace garden. He watered it. He provided for it. He had that tree take an oath. But the seed from the tree did not become a tree with branches. It stayed very, very low like a vine. Its roots did not turn toward the eagle that placed it there, but rather it turned toward another eagle. Will that vine wither? Will that vine thrive? Will not that vine's roots be uprooted by the eagle that planted it there? Tell this parable, tell this riddle to the people of Ezekiel that they will understand what the future holds. Really? I will understand what the future holds by that? We're going to try and stay in the mystery of this riddle and then by the end figure out exactly what it means and then what it means to us. Well, first let's talk about why God chose to use a riddle. The Babylonians loved riddles. Recently, an, archaeologi- an archaeological find found another tablet from the area that the Assyrian Empire had before the Babylonians took it over. It's a rare 3,500-year-old 3, piece, and it's got a series of riddles from the Babylonian Mesopotamian area. It's got riddles about the importance of beer in everyday life. It's got jokes about ancient politics. And here's an actual riddle from this tablet from Babylon. The tower is high... It is high, but nonetheless, it has no shade. What is it? What is a tower that is so high, but has no shade? Later in this cuneiform tablet, it says that some days you look up in the clouds and you see the sun piercing through and you can see the rays coming down and a ray of sunlight looks like a tall tower. And the answer to this riddle is a ray of sunshine. It looks as tall as a tower that extends to the heavens, but it has no shadow because it's a ray of light. I mention this because God is the master communicator. One of the reasons we have two different services, one of the reasons we use music from the culture as well as in this service, you know, contemporary music to celebrate communion, is in the same way we saw in the book of Exodus, God uses the metaphors and the imagery of the Egyptians to communicate his message. In the same way here, God, the master communicator, is using riddles to a group of people who are now in residence to an area of Babylon. God loves to communicate in the message and words of the culture, his unchanging message. So today we're going to look at the riddle. It's going to take me a while to unpack it. And then we're going to look at three reflections when we get to the application. So we go over that riddle again directly from the text here in chapter 7. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man! Pose a riddle. Speak a parable to the house of Israel. Thus say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with large wings and long pinions 
full of feathers of various colors. He took from the cedar the highest branch. He cropped off its topmost young twig and carried it to a land of trade. He set it in a city of merchants. Then he took some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile field. He placed it by abundant waters and he set it up like a willow tree. And it grew. It became like a spreading vine, but it was always of low stature. Its branches turned toward him, the eagle that placed it there, but its roots were under it. So instead of becoming a tree, it became a vine. Brought forth branches, put forth shoots. But there was another great eagle, another one, with large wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him. It stretched its branches toward him, the other eagle. And from the garden terrace it had been placed in, where it had been planted, that he, the other eagle, might water it. It was planted in good soil by many waters to bring forth branches, to bear fruit, and to become a majestic vine. I think, Chad, that's a lot more detail. I still have no idea what you're talking about. If you put it in a visual, here's what it might look like. Here's our main characters. We've got an eagle. We've got a cedar. We've got some part, a twig or a branch or a top portion of the cedar he takes. We've got a fertile field he's going to deposit into with the seed. And then we have another eagle that he turns to. Hmm. I got to stay at the 10 o'clock service. What is this? <laughs> We're going to try and unpack each of the pieces and get some hints as to who these pieces are. Let's begin at the, ten, let's begin at the, uh, the questions God asks. He finishes this, the parable, the ruler. He says, now will this wither? Will it thrive? Will he not be pulled up by its roots, by the one who planted there? Cut off its fruit, leave it to wither. All of its spring leaves will wither with its roots pulled up. No great power or many people will be needed to pluck it up by its roots. Behold, it is planted, but will it thrive? Will it utterly wither when the east wind torches it? Will it wither in the garden terrace where it grew? It seems like rhetorically it's going to wither because it did something bad and it turned to one eagle and not the other. So let's figure out what the pieces are. Let's start off with the eagle. A great eagle with large wings and long pinions. There's only one eagle that's actually in the Middle East. So they don't have bald eagles. They do have the short-toed snake eagle, which might be the reason why he uses a vine metaphor, because the eagle would have picked up a vine thinking it was a snake. So who is the eagle in the story? Well, often when you read the Bible, if you keep reading when something seems confusing, it later tells you who the pieces are. If you can't figure it out from a keep reading, sometimes you can find somebody else in the Bible who uses the same metaphor. In this case, at the same time Ezekiel was writing, Daniel was writing, and Daniel uses the same idea of an eagle and tells us what it means. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 2, it says, I saw in my vision four great beasts that came up from the sea, and each was different from the other. And he describes four kingdoms. And he says the first kingdom was like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. And Daniel later will tell us this is the kingdom of Babylon. So the hint we get from Daniel is that this eagle represents the mighty kingdom of Babylon with the seven ancient um, ancient uh, wonders of the world. They built the Babylonian gardens. So we're talking about the kingdom of Babylon. All right. Who's the cedar? Well, it's interesting because it says he took from the cedar the highest branch and they cropped off the topmost twig. In the book of Chronicles in the Old Testament, when God was going to build, David was going to build the temple, he said, I want to build this out of the best wood. And so he actually imported cedar. 
And so cedars, the mighty cedars of Lebanon became an imagery like the bald eagle might be for America. The cedar was the image of Israel, the image of Judah, the image of the, the, the nation where God's people lived. And specifically, you'll see that Solomon references the fact that his dad, David, had sent to buy cedars to buy the temple itself to buy that temple or to build that temple. So it seems like the cedars represent Israel, but specifically the royal priesthood or the royal kingdom of Israel. All, all the kings through David and Solomon came through. And so the cedar tree is the royal line of that time. Stay with me. All right, next. What is this land of merchants, the city of merchants? Well, Babylon was a world power. It was the world power at the time, and it was literally the center of commerce. It was the center of trade. It was the center of business. So Babylon takes something from the royal line of Jerusalem and deposits it in a foreign land which seems to be the center hub of the kingdom or capital city of Babylon and drops him there. And now we get to the hardest question. So stay with me. Who is the twig? Now to figure out who the twig is, we have to have a basic understanding of the Old Testament kings which is always like you know, going into a deep, dark forest. So in order to help you take 10 hours or 5 hours of research I did on this, I've turned it into a cartoon so we can try and keep track of the people. All right, so here they go. Here's our kings. King Josiah, G.I. Joe, Joe, King Josiah. King Josiah has three sons. They all become king at some point. King Jehoahaz, who holds the hoe. King Jehoahaz, who reigns at 609 B.C., real short reign. He has another king, King Jehoiakim. See, he looks like Mr. Kim. And he reigns from 609 to 598. He has another son, King Jehoiachin. See his big chin? Jehoiachin, who Jeremiah refers to as Jeconiah. He's got two names. He reigns for only three months. Three months in 597 B.C. Now, they have an uncle. Their dad, G.I. Joe, King Josiah has a brother, their uncle, who's known not as king, but as Prince Zedekiah. Because of the Z, we'll make him look like Zorro. So we have Prince Zedekiah. So in the family line of Judah, as you look at history, King Josiah, all of his sons are reigning. One of them gets plucked off in history, taken by the Babylonians, and actually is a, a captive king under the command of King Nebuchadnezzar for a period of time. He does not do well. And that is Jehoiachin. Jehoiachin is arrogant. And though he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he will obey him and he will operate under his authority, after three months he leads a rebellion. He is pulled out and uprooted by Babylon. And Babylon replaces him with his uncle, which is why he referred to him as Prince Zedekiah, because he didn't come out of the family line. The Babylonians put Prince Zedekiah there to do what Jehoiachin couldn't. Whew. So, back to our parable. So, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes along. He takes King Jehoiachin, puts him in place, and after three months, he so doesn't keep his oath and keep his word, that Babylon uproots him and imprisons him for 34 years for a three-month mistake of rebellion, and replaces him with Prince Zedekiah, who actually reigns from 597 to 586. Therefore, here's what the parable symbolizes. 
Babylon, the eagle is King Nebuchadnezzar. Judah, the royal house of David, is the cedar. Jehoiachin is the piece that's taken off. He's planted there but uprooted until Zedekiah is put in place. And Zedekiah, because Jehoiachin had turned to the other eagle, we'll find out is Egypt in a moment. And this is the parable. And you're going, all right, I guess I know what it means, but what does it mean to me? So, now let's get into what does it mean for me. Well, God has some very specific applications that I think apply to us today. But here's what I want you to notice before we jump into those reflections. Look at how many kings fall and are established, fall and are established during a time. That God is the one that reigns. Daniel will say it this way. We own a, a king that is most high. Our God is the king of heaven and earth. He sets up kings and he disposes kings. He is ultimately sovereign over the world. So three reflections from this parable. Reflection number one. Everything you've been given can be taken away. Now, if you had talked to the royal household of Judah going back to King David and King Solomon, they'd say, well, no, no, no. We're the royal family. I mean, certainly if somebody comes in, they might take some of the peasants. They make t- some of the people who don't have money or don't have influence or no power. We're safe. We're protected. What we have can't be taken away. And that voice of arrogance is in all of us. I earned everything I have, not God gifted it to me. I developed my talents, not a reminder that God gave us our talents. Not living in dependence that God is the one who resourced us with opportunity. So instead of living as humble people in surrender to God, recognizing everything's been given to us by God, we walk around arrogantly thinking that nothing we have can be taken away because we're invincible. But what we see through all these kings being disposed is that everything we have can be taken away. Here's how God says it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Say now to the rebellious house. Remember, God's waited 400 years for them to turn from their evil ways. So this is like God's really wanting them to return. He's waited and waited and waited. And now we're at the end of the patience period. He says, do you not know what these things mean? I don't know what these things mean. Tell them. And here's where God gives you the hints. I told you if you kept reading, it would have told you. Indeed, the king of Babylon, there's our eagle, went to Jerusalem, the cedar, and took its king and princes. Now think about that for a second. The people who are supposed to be safe, oh, the king will never lose his power or his influence. God puts a situation in place that took away their influence, and he didn't just take the peasants, he took the king. And he took what else? The princes. Well, they should have been protected. God is saying everything you have was a gift, and it can be taken away. And he led them to Babylon. And he took, and there is again, those took, got taken away. He took the king's offspring. And he made a covenant with him. King of Babylon made a covenant with the king's offspring. This was Jehoiachin. And put him under oath. And he promised he would do some things. Also, when, when Nebuchadnezzar, in history, Nebuchadnezzar is amazing. He had this incredible strategy. He would come into a country, conquer the country, and then he would take away the cream of the crop. So it says he took the mighty of the land. Nebuchadnezzar would assess who are the best poets, who are the best military strategists, who are the best leaders, who are the best and the best of the culture. And he would take all of the best cream of the crop from that culture, take them to Babylon, and Babylonianize them and his culture and his way of thinking. And this has already happened in the mind of the audience. If you remember your Bible, Nebuchadnezzar took Shadrach, 
Meshach, Tabednego, and Daniel in the first wave. And that's exactly what he's referring to here. The mighty of the land were those people taken to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar came back a second time, crushed the people, says, time to listen up. And he comes back another time. Now he takes their king. Come on, listen up. But there's one more time coming. And God's saying, when are you people going to listen? But the principle here, I think, is this. Do we live like people that everything we have has been given to us? Do we live with the sense that everything we have could be taken away? Do we live with that kind of humility, that kind of stewardship, that our life is a steward from God? Do you think about your influence with your kids as a stewardship of time that you need to treasure? How about your health? Do you thank God for your health? Because the minute you start to lose it or get that phone call and that doctor's report, you immediately realize just how fragile we are. We all know people who worked in a company and they worked hard and made good decisions to get to this position and they got to this level and they don't make good decisions anymore. Why? Because they're so scared of losing their position that losing their position becomes the very motivation for their leadership. Right? You know people like that. I've even been a person like that. Versus a Christian says, hey, I am in this job, I am in this season for a period of time. It's going to be taken away. Eventually someone will come along who's smarter than me, better than me. I don't need to be threatened by that. I need to say in light of the window I have, I need to be faithful to what God's called me to do. Because leadership is stewardship. It's temporary and you're held accountable. I got a feeling of that about a month ago. So about a month ago, I get a phone call from my wife. I said, hey, honey, what's up? We have a problem. Am I the problem? No. Oh, thank goodness. Let's talk. All right, what's the problem? She said, uh, well, um, DCFS just showed up at our door. I said, like, Department of Children and Family Services? She's like, yeah. I said, what are they doing there? She said, well, one of our neighbors turned us in for abusing our autistic son. What? What did they say we did? They said we're not feeding him. <laughs> Eats every 15 minutes. Said we'd leave him outside unattended, unaware that he loves being outside. We have cameras working out the window. The conversation in the living room is always, check on Quinn. Do you see him? I see him. But all of a sudden, in one moment, my reputation for my neighbors. Oh, my goodness. I wonder how many people they told. I wonder how many people think I'm a bad parent. I wonder what people think if they find out that DCFS is investigating us. And now... We got an appointment next Tuesday, and they're going to come over and investigate. And so here we are justifying our parenting before two 20-year-old social workers. That was a little snarky, wasn't it? That was a little snarky. And in one moment, something like reputation, something like influence in your community is taken away. Now, don't tell anybody about this. I'm really embarrassed that this happened, so just sort of keep this between us. But in the same way, whether it's your reputation, whether it's the medical report and all of a sudden your health is taken away, whether it's the influence you have with your kids or grandkids, or whether it's the ability you have to have influence in your company, do we really look at our life as a season by which it's been given to us for a time that we'll be faithful to? That's our first reflection. Our second reflection here from this parable is that as a people of God's word, we should keep our word. Not because we're trying to work our way to heaven, but because we believe God is faithful and keeps his word to us. His promises are true. What he says, he does. His promises can be counted on. They can be banked on. And God says, if you are people representing me and my word, living in a culture that does not understand me, doesn't believe in me, doesn't agree with me, 
I want you as people of my word to be people of your word. Here's how he says it. It's actually shocking. He took the king's offspring, Babylon did. He made a covenant with him. Babylon said to King Jehoiachin, will you, I'll, I'll covenant with you. I'll prom- if you promise to lead in a certain way, I will give you this position for a time. But do you promise that you will operate under my authority? And he put him under oath. And Jehoiachin said, I'll do it. He also took away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be brought low. And God says, I wanted you. You've been an arrogant people. You've been a proud people. I wanted you to be brought low under Babylonian rule to learn humility. But that by keeping his covenant, it might stand. He goes, as long as you stay humble, as long as you don't try and overthrow, I will create some mechanisms where you can actually enjoy the reign that you have. And Jehoiachin said he would. But instead of keeping his word, even to a Babylonian king, a tyrant, he, Jehoiachin, rebelled against him and sent his ambassadors to Egypt. The other, the other eagle. And he said to Egypt, I gotta get rid of Babylon. I told him I would obey him, but I'm not really gonna obey him. I told him I'd submit to his authority, I'm not really going to. What do you got? Side note here. In the book of Deuteronomy, God said, one day you're gonna want a king. You do not want a king government. 1 Samuel chapter 8, king governments tax you to death, 10% of your oil, 10% of your wheat, 10%, 10%, 10%. Secondly, they take your wives and your women and your daughters and make them part of the harem, and they take your sons off to war. Don't have a king government. However, one day you're going to want a king government. So in Deuteronomy, when you get a king, every day the king's to write to himself this note. I am under the law. I am not an exception to the law. Two, You are not to go to Egypt to get horses, because I delivered you from Egypt. And three, you're not to multiply wives for yourself. And and four, you're not to multiply silver and gold for yourself. The king was commanded that if you're going to have a king, bad idea, but at least make sure the king knows he's under the law. Make sure he knows not to go back to Egypt. Jehoiachin is doing the very things God's word told the king not to do. I was talking to a friend recently about how to influence people toward our faith and toward our God. He was talking about trying to share his faith and how important that was and how to bring up spiritual conversations. I said, I think in our culture today, one of the greatest ways we can be a visual aid is simply by keeping our word. We live in a culture today that no one keeps their word. Yeah, I'll call you in a week. Week goes by. Two weeks go by. Yeah, yeah, I'll be there at seven. It's eight. Oh, sorry. I forgot about it. Am I dabbling in uh, the TV industry and the, and the book industry over the last couple of years? I've just been shell-shocked at people's inability to keep their word. Yeah, we'll definitely follow up by, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you can't do something, say, I can't do that. I can't get to that for a month. I'm not going to get back to you. That we should be people of our word. And God says, even in the context of making an oath to the Babylonian king, You could have been a visual aid that even under submission, even in humility, you spoke. Your yes was yes and your no was no. I wanted to use you to influence this king. And instead, you you demonstrate yourself as a person who lies, a person who breaks commands, and a person who doesn't keep their oath. Now, God's going to use this metaphor and say, what do you think Babylon's going to do? Is he going to let you thrive? Is he going to rip you out by the roots? Yes, three months later. When you turn to another Egypt, you turn to another kingdom. And God is saying in the same way, I've waited 400 years. I made an oath with you. I wanted to be your God. I want you to be my people. 
And instead of you being my people and staying in covenant and being faithful to me, you have chosen to find your identity and find your source in all kinds of other eagles. You find your identity in money or career or family, good things, sometimes bad things, but you have not stayed faithful to me. And because of that, I'm going to allow the king of Babylon to come and uproot you so that you can feel the consequences of your lack of integrity. He goes on, says it this way, that they might give horses and many people. The king's looking for Egypt. Will he prosper? Will he who does such things escape the king of Babylon? No. Then why would he escape from me? Can he break a covenant and still be delivered? As I live, says the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke with him in the midst of Babylon, he's going to die. There's consequences to this stuff. Nor will Pharaoh and his mighty army and great commander do anything in the war. This isn't going to work, the strategy you have. Oh, they're going to heap up a siege mound and build a wall to cut off many persons. I know about their strategy. But I'm telling you, your integrity will be found out. You despised an oath. You broke the covenant. And in fact, gave his hand and still did these many things. You're not going to escape. He goes on and says it one more time. Therefore, says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, in the same way you broke your oath to, to king of Babylon, my oath has been despised. My covenant you broke. I will recompense on his own head. I will let him reap what he sows. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon and try him there for treason, which he committed against me. All his fugitives with all his troops shall fall by the sword, and those who remain shall be scattered to every wind. And you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. To which we go, this is why I hate the Old Testament. God's so angry. He's so ticked off. I like Jesus showing up, saying sorry about my dad. Let me tell you about something else. This is the same God in the Old Testament and New Testament. But God is not codependent. God does not have codependent enabling relationships. After 400 years of patience, he says, it's time for you to face the consequences to learn the lesson. I love you. I want you to know I'm the Lord. I want to be in a faithful relationship with you. But if you're going to continue this behavior, you're going to feel pain. heard the story last week of Jesse Itzler. He's the owner of the Hawks. He also started a company called Marquee Jets, like a timeshare for jets, where he made his millions and he really wanted to challenge himself, and so he began to prepare for a marathon, he and several buddies. And they had it all together. They had the outfits together, they had the right shoes, they had the right diet, the right training. They even had a masseuse there that day to get the muscles uh, loosened before they ran the marathon. As they were preparing, a guy walks up next to them carrying a lawn chair, old sneakers, a thermos made of plastic, and a bag of crackers sits it down right next to their luxury tent he had set up. And they're like, what's with the homeless guy? Hey, you run the race? Sure am. That guy's not even going to finish. He doesn't have the right physique for it. He doesn't look prepared for it. So they start running. Mile 18, mile 20. And all of a sudden, as they're running along, the homeless guy passes them by. And between mile 20 and mile 26, the homeless guy kills them, creams them. They get to the end of the race, and he says, can I ask you what your name is, Jesse says. And he says, my name's David. He said, David, I'm so surprised that not only did, did you finish, but you finished so well, and you slaughtered us. Can you tell me your story? He said, sure, I'm a Navy SEAL. 
I just finished retirement. One of my uh, bucket lists was to run a marathon, so I came down today to do it. And Jesse said, "Will you, if you're, if you're retired, would you come and live with me for a month? He wrote, wrote this in his book called Living with a Seal. And would you train me to get the best out of me? David said, sure, here's my motto. If it doesn't suck, we don't do it. <laughs> they came to his house for the first day. He had a chin-up bar up in his uh, backyard. He says, all right, let's start. How many chin-ups can you do? He's like, I'm not very good at chin-ups. He does eight. Collapses. 30 seconds later, try it again. He does six. Collapses. Try it again. Gets up to about three. Oh, his arms are just jello. David turns to Jesse and says, all right. What we learned as Navy SEALs is called the 40% rule. When your body tells you there's nothing else inside, you have 40% more capacity. 40. It's like, well, then what do I do? He goes, we're not leaving here until you do 100 more chin-ups. And he spent the next couple hours, one at a time, and he got up to 100. And during that month, he learned... That there is stuff deep within you that can only be brought out through pain, can only be brought out through challenge. And this Navy SEAL not only was not against him or was not angry at him, he was being paid by him to do this to him. And the same way God is coming to the people and saying, we've got to dig deep into what's broken in your heart and get it out. I've got to show your capacity to love and your capacity to, to, to be in alignment with truth. And so I'm putting you through this experience of pain because I love you and because I want the best out of you. Third reflection, and our final one. God exalts those who humble themselves in due time. When it comes to leaders, all of these kings in history became arrogant, and in due time, God humbled them. Even king of, of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, a very arrogant man, and Daniel turns to him and says, if you keep taking credit for what God has given to you, God's going to take away your sanity. If you know the story, it's exactly what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar one day, after being warned, looks at his mighty kingdom of Babylon and he says, Look at everything that I have done! And God strikes him with a very unique condition called bovantropia, which is actually, it's studied in psychological journeys, it's the condition where you lose your sanity and think you're a cow. Bovantropy. And for the next couple of years, he chews grass, loses his health, loses his mind until the day comes. King Babylon, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar looks up to heaven and says, you are the God of heaven and earth, and God restores his mind. Well, if that's true, do we live like people that believe that God exalts those who humble themselves? God says, thus says the Lord God, I will also take one of the highest branches. Now, this is what's so cool. God says, you've broken your word, bad things are happening, but I want you to have hope. Let me tell you my plan for the future. And every commentator says this is a a, a teaching about the coming Messiah. I'm going to one day take from the highest branches of the royal lineage of Judah, the high cedar. I'm going to set one out. And the kind of branch I'm going to use to change the world, I'm going to crop it off from the topmost of its young twigs. It's going to be a very tender leader, a very tender branch. And I'm going to plant it on a high and prominent mountain. And on the mountain, height of Israel, I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs, it will bear fruit, it will be a majestic cedar. And that's exactly what we see at Christmas, is that God came in the form of a child, and he 
Place that child up on the mountain of Calvary where he will die for our inability to keep our word, for our prioritizing everything besides God. And he will bear fruit for us and with us, that he will come and live in us if we ask him to, that we can be filled with joy and peace and forgiveness that comes from the twig that was tender, the humble the humble leader that God exalted to the right hand of God. And under his reign will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all of the trees of the field shall know that I, I the Lord, have brought down the high tree of the Roman Empire, of the Babylonian Empire, of the Greek Empire. And I've exalted the low tree, my son, the Messiah. And I've dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. How do you live in Babylon? How do you live in a kingdom that's not your own? As our culture increasingly moves toward a Babylonian experience, I think the same three things are true. We live in Babylon and we recognize, number one, that God is the one that raises kings and puts kings down. And as Christians, we certainly pray toward and work toward the, the leader with the most character. We try and work toward those who will implement the most policies and principles of, of the word. That is certainly what we should be doing this week as we think about our election. But we also don't put our hope in politics because we recognize that God is the one that sets up kings and there's times he puts Babylonians into your life to humble you so that you will learn something that will grow from it and God places these in place in our life and he says while you're living in very unusual times very difficult times with a culture that's antagonistic toward your values what do you do these three things you develop eagle eyes so you can soar like an eagle even in a culture that's antagonistic toward who you are you recognize that you're a steward, that everything you've been given can be taken away. And that spirit permeates what you do, and there's an aroma to your life. You're a steward. Two, as people of the word, you keep your word when everyone else lies, when everyone else fudges. I heard a story last night. A guy took a job, had a 40% increase, but he promised to give two weeks' notice. It was costing him $700 a week. But he turned to his mom, who attends here, and said, Mom, but I'm a person of integrity. I want to keep my word. There's something about that will make us a visual aid, even in a culture that doesn't keep its word and, and lies about everything. And thirdly, that we will be people who recognize that when we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this weird and strange riddle. But thank you for the calling upon us to be people who live differently, that have the values of a different kingdom in a kingdom that is so broken. We ask this, this week for our nation, God, that you would exalt the leader that you want, that you would prompt us to weigh all the different challenges and all the different values to, to implement uh, the best way we can your kingdom here on earth. And Father, we ask that you would uh, not turn your back upon us, that you would be gracious and merciful upon us as a nation. And God, that you would raise up leaders that would love you, that would be humble, and that would care for others and would make us a society that loves everyone, regardless of our beliefs. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning.